Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And this is part two of our two-part exploration of the age of the Earth. If you have not heard part one of this episode, you should go back and listen to that first. That's really going to lay the groundwork for everything we're talking about today. In the last episode, we talked about why we're addressing this topic, even though it's a topic that there is not legitimate scientific controversy about. Uh, there, there's no real scientific argument about whether the Earth is billions of years old or younger. Uh, it is billions of years old. But we are addressing it because we've we've frequently gotten mail from listeners asking us to help them sort out and understand the differences in claims about the age of the Earth. So we're on that adventure now. Yeah, and uh, if you listen to the first episode, uh, I do uh, I do want to just tell everybody this one is is definitely worth listening to as well. Uh, it's not all going to be elements and isotopes. There's going to be some cool history in here. Uh, there's going to be uh, some some rather dynamic uh, geologic examples. So there's a there's a lot of cool stuff in this episode, even if. You don't need convincing about the scientific consensus about the age of the earth or you, you don't need uh, uh, ammunition for arguments with people who do hold on to a, some sort of a, uh, a young earth view. Uh, there's going to be a lot of fun in this episode regardless. Robert, I say we should meet a scientist named Claire C. Patterson who I will hereafter call the Lord of Lead. Uh, Lord of Lead does sound a lot more uh, metal, I will say. <laughs> Well, Claire, Claire was a Lord of Lead. He, Claire Cameron Patterson lived 1922 to 1995, and he was a geochemist on the faculty at Caltech and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. According to his New York Times obituary by William Dick, he had something of a reputation as sort of a rebel and an outlier in his field. And uh, Barclay Camb, who was provost at Caltech in the 1980s, once said that Patterson's thinking and imagination were, quote, so far ahead of the times that he has often gone misunderstood and unappreciated for years until his colleagues finally caught up and realized he was right. Nothing to inflate your ego like somebody saying everybody will finally realize he's right. <laughs> And speaking to an article in uh, USA Today, the Caltech geologist John Eiler described him as fearless and said, quote, wherever the science took him, he would follow. And so Patterson was reportedly sometimes critical of colleagues who he might have referred to as ivory tower scientists. His research was definitely not confined to arcane academic matters. He got down into the world, into stuff that, that had an impact on human life. And for one thing, much of Patterson's important, most important work focused on measuring and contrasting levels of lead in the atmosphere at various times in history. And as the Lord of Lead, Patterson, using a variety of methods, demonstrated that people in the 20th century were taking in these enormous doses of lead contamination in their bodies, uh, much more than their prehistoric ancestors had consumed. And this exposure to lead has extreme consequences on the health of humans and other organisms. Lead gets in you, it affects everything from the brain to the kidneys. Um, to quote from his New York Times obituary, quote, he sampled snow from the ice caps of Greenland and Antarctica that had fallen hundreds or thousands of years earlier, showing there had been significant increases in lead in the northern hemisphere when the Greeks and Romans smelted lead in antiquity. He discovered that millions of years ago, the amount of lead stored in microscopic plant and animal life or plankton in ocean sediments was only one-tenth to one-one-hundredth the amount now flowing into the oceans from the continents. And so uh, Patterson's research helped form the basis of the case for the Clean Air Act of 1970 and the elimination of leaded gasoline, which was the biggest single cause of lead pollution in the environment at the time. All right. Well, this is all this is all well and good. I mean, this is great. Uh, uh, but where does this where does he come into our discussion of the age of the Earth? Well, Patterson was also the first person to make an accurate estimate of the age of the Earth and the solar system, which he published in the 1950s based on the accumulating body of knowledge about radioactive decay. Now, if you remember in the previous episode, one of the types of radiometric dating we talked about was uranium-lead dating. And this, so that studies the decay of a radioactive isotope of uranium into lead over millions of years. 
And so specifically in Patterson's case, the key was to look at the solar system at large to find out how old the Earth was, since the evidence indicated that everything in the solar system was formed around the same time. Patterson and others realized they could study the decay of uranium and thorium into daughter isotopes of lead in meteorites to determine the age of the solar system objects, including the Earth. And so in the 1950s, I think the late 40s and early uh, – late 40s and the 50s, Patterson used mass spectrometry to study Earth-based zircons. The, those are these little crystals I talked mm -hmm. about in the previous episode that are usually formed with zirconium atoms in them but sometimes get radioactive uranium atoms lodged into them. And these – the decay of these uh, radioactive uranium atoms inside the zircon crystals can be used to date the crystals. Uh, so he was studying Earth-based zircons and uranium lead decay in meteorite material. And ultimately, Patterson was able to pin the date of the solar system's accretion, including the Earth, to about 4.5 billion years, which is still basically the accurate figure. And I love this link between his work on uh, like environmental contaminants and, and lead in, in human life mm -hmm. uh, to to studying the very origin of the Earth. That's, that's some of the best stuff in science when – when knowledge gets applied in such different ways like that, it really gets my gears going. Yeah, right at the human level and right at the – essentially the God level of uh -huh. things, yeah. So earlier I mentioned uh, the quote from John Eiler talking to USA Today uh, and uh, Eiler makes this case pretty well. He says, quote, Patterson is a pretty clear example of the link between basic science that seems unrelated to everyday life, the age of the earth and science that makes a crucial difference every moment in our everyday lives. There really isn't a difference between the skills, the methods and the thinking that led him to both discoveries and that's the story of science. And I love that quote because I feel like that's sort of the case we're trying to make in these episodes, right? That there's sort of a coherent scientific approach to looking at the world around you. And in order to reject the age of the earth and say that the earth is just a few thousand years old, you're not just arguing with a particular method of radiometric dating. As we'll continue to explore throughout the rest of this episode, it's essentially a rebuke of the entire scientific way of looking at the world. Yeah, it would really force you to throw the trigonometry baby into the ocean. And, uh, <laughs> and, you, and you shouldn't have to do that. Um, so th there were a lot of difficulties Patterson had in his work. So he had to develop extremely stringent experimental procedures in order to get accurate results. Uh, the, the Times obituary talks about this. I've read about this elsewhere too that he, he found that lead contamination was just everywhere. So scientific labs are full of lead contaminants because of all, all kinds of lead pollution. And if you're trying to measure minute ratios of lead isotopes inside a hunk of meteorite, you don't want to be contaminating it with lead from, I don't know, the car exhaust you walked through on the way to the lab mm -hmm. uh, and other, all other kinds of ambient lead that are currently poisoning your body. So he established clean room procedures including like washing your hands in distilled water and putting on all the, you know, all the uh, – what are the – when people go and work on the chips in the laboratories, those suits. Yes. And all of this should help us notice that radiometric dating has all kinds of important caveats. Like pretty much all types of chemical measurement, it can be subject to sample contamination, to equipment malfunction, to user error, and so forth. And this is why it's really important to corroborate any radiometrically generated date with multiple tests and if possible with multiple methods. Also when possible, I think it's better to think about radiometric dating Instead of giving us a date, giving us sort of confidence ratings for different ranges of dates. So just as an example, uh, a radiometric test or a series of tests might tell us that we're 99 percent sure that a thing is between 4 and 5 billion years old and 75 percent sure that it's between 4.5 and 4.6 billion years old and that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean there is, there is a certain amount of uncertainty baked into the process. Right. But it'll tell you bigger ranges with greater certainty. Right. But what about rocks from the Earth itself? Uh, this can be more difficult since the Earth is just frequently eating and barfing up its own crust. It, it's part of how Earth is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's dynamic. Yeah. Uh, and this, this can be more difficult. Uh, so rocks from billions of years ago often tend to disappear into the bowels of the Earth. They get gobbled up in one way or another. They get subducted or something like that. But sometimes we can find them. 
And it's pretty common to read about discoveries of increasingly ancient rocks found on Earth. Just uh, I was looking at a few articles from recent years. One is that um, rocks from the Acosta Nice in the Northwest Territories of Canada, and that's Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. That's a geological term, not not like, oh, nice. Um, that Those have been dated to more than 4 billion years old. In September 2008, there was a National Science Foundation press release. I was reading about a piece of Canadian bedrock from the – and I'm sorry if I mispronounced this – the uh, Nuvuagatuk greenstone belt, which was dated to between 3.8 and 4.28 billion years old. And then also there is a zircon from the Jack Hills of Western Australia that's been dated to over 4 billion years, I think about 4.4 billion years old. So here and there, we find little bits of the surface of the Earth that seem to go almost all the way back to the beginning. And certainly back before, say, that 6,000-year point. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're not just quibbling with the 6,000-year mm-hmm. point. They're saying it is so many orders of magnitude off. Right. As we said, they just give confidence intervals. They don't tell you an exact date. So, you know, you could quibble here or there with calibrating the correct date of these rocks, but they're not going to calibrate orders of magnitude down. Yeah, it just comes back to what I I said in the last episode about the difference between uh, the scale of human history and the scale of geologic history. Yeah. Uh, Religion and myth, with with some notable uh, exceptions— tend to take place within human history because it is a product of human understanding. That's a good point. Our, our minds are just not made to contemplate timescales like this. It's not I, – I would argue actually it's not just theological beliefs that drive people to want to imagine a, a younger earth, I think. I mean it's also like if you want to wrap your brain around the history of the earth, you're not going to be able to do it with a 4.5 billion year old earth. You, you're not really picturing that time. You're just sort of condensing it into a representation of a timeline that you can kind of picture. Right. I mean the, I mean, how do you put that into a perspective of generations, right? And, uh, and and so and so begot so and so, you know. I mean, yeah, it doesn't w- work, right? I mean, and, and I mean, and I'm I'm not just you know harping on um, you know books of the Bible or anything here, but just the the human perspective, the human shape of things. Like we just have a tendency to understand those better, to understand those stories better. Uh, again, the the appeal of storytelling uh, versus the uh, the kind of data that is involved in in rigorous scientific understanding. Yeah, and uh, I mean we, we are always vulnerable to this. Stories are more compelling. Yeah. Stories are more compelling than data. They shouldn't be. I mean the data are actually more reliable, but w- what are people going to remember better? A story. What's going to connect better with people emotionally is a story. Even even people who try to be scientifically minded are highly vulnerable to stories. I think about the most effective science communication books try to be story-based. Yeah. Like in in our last episode, you know, there was a point where we had to talk about radioisotopes and stuff like that in order to explain how how radioactive decay works. But uh, talking about how radioisotopes decay is not as compelling as like telling the story of the Lord of Lead. Right. At any rate, I don't mean to derail the conversation. I can <laughs> I can talk all day about uh, you know science and religion and where and where and and, and when they can line up and and, uh, and and support each other. Really? Oh, you mean like we need to create new religious narratives that that uh, that help people confirm scientific knowledge? <laughs> <laughs> or I mean, part of it is realizing what kind of answers religion can provide versus what kind of answers uh, science can provide. Uh, it, it's been pointed out, for instance, that uh, uh, you can take uh, the question why. And there, there are essentially two different versions of why. There's a causal why and there's a teleological why. Mm-hmm. There's the why, like why is this uh, – why did this happen? What is the, the thing uh, that uh, preceded it? Yeah, what is the, the process? The physical chain of events that caused it. Right. And then on the other hand, the, the teleological why is uh, for what reason is this as it is? For what reason am I what I am? Yeah, and so um, you know, broadly speaking, you can say that religion can provide the teleological, and uh, science provides the the, the causal. Um, it, religion is very good at providing a, a, a sense of narrative, or as we were just talking about narratives and stories, a sense of narrative or story that that makes sense of things. Yeah, but again, I don't mean to uh, derail the conversation. I could talk about that all day. 
Well, yeah, but I guess we, I guess we got to get back to the idea of what we were setting out to talk about. Yeah, today. we have a yeah. lot of <laughs> impersonal uh, geology to unpack here. No, we'll try to make it as personal no, as it's, possible. It's, it, yeah, and it's exciting stuff. Uh, it's, it is dynamic. We're talking about the stuff of uh, of uh, you know earthquakes and volcanoes here. So, so you might be thinking you you've heard us talk about radioisotope decay, about uh, radiometric dating, about Claire Patterson, and you think, yeah, but how do we know these methods of dating the Earth actually work? Like, are we just taking some scientist's word for it. Like, what if a scientist is lying and saying it works, but it doesn't really? That's not really a plausible critique. Be- right. Because, like, I mean... It's like the yes, but what if it wasn't uh, <laughs> uh, response. I, I can explain why it's not a plausible critique. And one strong line of evidence is when multiple independent tests with different methods produce results that are in agreement with each other. The simple version of this is um, how do you know when eyewitness testimony is good, right? You know, an eyewitness can get all kinds of stuff wrong. We explore Mm -hmm. that on the podcast all the time. So say you – you know, you arrive at the scene of a crime. You pull up at the video store and – and somebody has just sped away stealing a priceless copy of Highlander 2, The Quickening. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially if you're uh, you know, an orthodox Highlander 2 fan. Uh, uh, as like I yourself. am. Yeah. You, accept no director's cut. <laughs> accept no renegade cut. Unacceptable. You've got to get the original version on VHS that's got all the bad scenes. It's the only way to feel The Quickening. Uh, but, yeah, so you get on the scene. A copy of Highlander 2 has been stolen, and you want to find out who did it. Fortunately, there are several people standing around. It just happened. So you separate all the people, and they they can't talk to each other. And you interview them one at a time. And the first witness tells you that it was a man wearing a kilt with a bagpipe on his back and a katana sword hanging from his hip. And he ran into the store, and he yelled, there can be only one. And he grabbed the tape, and he ran out. Now, as we've said, eyewitness testimony can be very faulty sometimes. People, there are all kinds of issues with perception and memory. But if you talk to the second witness and they independently mention all the same stuff, the kilt, the bagpipe, the katana, and you talk to a third witness, they mention all the same stuff again, you really have to think, okay, if they haven't talked to each other and they're all telling me all the same details, what are the odds that three people are getting all this different stuff wrong in the same way? And that's how corroboration of dating methods works. It's like having a second witness or a third witness on the scene who independently tells you they saw the same thing that the other witnesses did. It's possible they could be all they could all be wrong, but if they haven't talked to each other, why would they all be wrong the same way? All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll jump right back into the discussion. All right. We're back. All right. So I wanted to talk about a really great article that I read on this subject about uh, how to corroborate the the dating methods that are used in uh, in radiometric dating and establishing the age of the Earth. And the article is by the American geologist Brent Dalrymple, who worked for the U.S. Geological Survey and was a professor at Oregon State University. And he published a book on the age of the Earth called The Age of the Earth with Stanford University Press in 1991. And so he's got this really excellent article hosted on the National Center for Science Education website in which he picks out four different examples, basically four studies that he had personal experience with in which radiometric date ranges were corroborated by multiple kinds of tests, multiple labs that showed them to be accurate. Um, So it's, again, not just that we do one test and assume the answer is right, but we test multiple samples, multiple methods, multiple labs and get agreement on the results. So first example he gives the Manson meteorite impact site and the Pierre Shale. The Manson <laughs> the Manson meteorite. There's got to be a metal band for this one also. This has nothing to do with Charlie though, right? As I don't know. Uh, it's Manson, Iowa. Does Manson, Iowa have anything to do with Charlie? I do not believe it does, no. But it's still hard to shake that possible connection. <laughs> Okay, well, th- this is a look at argon-argon dating. Argon-argon dating is a method that's a derivative of the classic potassium-argon dating method, but it's now considered a more accurate version of that decay series test. It helps detect errors, protect against inaccurate results. And so during the Cretaceous period, we know that there was a big old meteorite. 
that hit part of what is now Iowa in the United States near Manson, Iowa. And uh, the hot impact melted a bunch of feldspar crystals in the granite rock layer near the surface at the time. And when these crystals are melted, their internal radiometric clocks get reset to zero. So if you use argon-argon dating to date these melted crystals, you'll get an age of about 74.1 million years. However, when the Manson meteorite hit, it also created what's known as shocked quartz crystals that exploded up into the air. They came down west of the impact in what's, what was then an inland sea. And now you can find the shocked quartz from this impact in a thin layer that's known as the Crow Creek member. And that's within this larger sedimentary rock formation called the Pierre Shale. The Pierre Shale also contains marine fossils like ammonites and ash from volcanic eruptions. These ash beds from uh, the volcanic eruptions, they've also got minerals in them like sanidine, feldspar, and biotite, which have been independently dated using the argon-argon method. And so there, there's a study that uh, the, the Dalrymple sites from Isaac. Coban, Dalrymple, and Obradovich in uh, 1998 in the Geological Society of America Bulletin. And what did they find? So they found more than a half dozen dates of biotite and sanidine surrounding the Crow Creek member where the, where the evidence of this impact near Manson was. And interesting, so remember that the melted feldspar crystals from the impact were dated to 74.1 million years old. The minerals found right below the impact layer, so that means they should be a little bit older, came up with dates of about 74 to 75 million years old. The minerals found right above the impact layer, which should be a little bit younger, got results indicating they were about 73 to 74 million years old. So these dates for each mineral were all corroborated with multiple sample tests to make sure they all agreed, and they tested with different kinds of minerals, and the results agreed. The biggest discrepancy in results came from comparing the biotite and the sanidine from the layer right below the impact, but this was less than a 1% difference. Also, the dates generated by the argon-argon tests generally agree with how old these layers of rock are supposed to be and with the kinds of fossils we'd expect to find in them. So if the dating method is not reliable, why do so many different tests of different minerals from different time periods agree with each other and fit together in the correct plausible geological order? And this is another thing we haven't even talked about much yet uh, is the – the idea of geologic stratification, like that there are layers of deposition of sedimentary rock oh, yeah. that happen over time and, and volcanic deposits from volcanic eruptions that you can see going back through time. And, you know, th there were paleontologists who were looking at fossil layers in rock formations going down this uh, stratigraphic column looking at the history of the Earth's surface before there was anything like radiometric dating. We didn't have any dates, but they were still saying, here are the ages that came earlier and the ages that came before that and identifying what these layers looked like. Yeah, I mean, it, and if you want a really impressive uh, vision of this, I mean, simply look at an image of or or better yet, uh, visit, say, the Grand Canyon. Oh yeah, and uh, and you are just. Uh, I mean, you, you, there's no denying the, uh, the these these geologic layers. I mean, it, it is a, a visual presentation of geologic time. I have not seen the Grand Canyon walls up close. What what does it look like? Well, I mean, up close it looks like, well, yeah. <laughs> like rock. But I mean, just like the the, the grand uh, scheme of things. And there there's a lot of uh, uh, you know educational educational material um, at the park as well that really talks about the different layers and what you're looking at and really the the the, the time that you're looking into. One, in fact, there is a there is a little walk you can do right at the like the major area, like the in a sense kind of like the high tourist uh, area of the Grand Canyon. Uh, there is a walk through time. You can take, and it like just talks about the different uh, uh, the, the different geologic uh, uh, ages. Do you remember what time you were at when a squirrel tried to steal food out of your hand? Oh, uh, that was that was a little further into the canyon. Um, <laughs> I want to say it was like what what is it? Angelhead Trail, uh, one of one of those. Yeah. Oh, that's a creepy name. I may have that wrong. I don't have that in my notes, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Squirrel attack trail. Now, we mentioned earlier that one of the ways that, say, uh, uh, Patterson, the Lord of Lead, identified the age of the Earth was by identifying the ages of meteorites that we think were formed around the same time. And meteorites are often subject to radiometric dating because it can help us understand the origins of the solar system. So given our current best model of how the solar system formed out of a solar nebula and accretion disk, it seems likely that the oldest meteorites are probably pretty close to the same age as the Earth itself. 
And Dalrymple writes about different tests on the ages of meteorites. So he talks about how the earliest types of meteorites are called chondrites because they contain these tiny spheres of crystals known as chondrules. And meteorites are often radiometrically dated. And when their mineral composition allows it, they're often dated by more than one different type of radioisotope decay series test. So a few examples he cites are the Allende meteorite, uh, which got uh, argon-argon, lead-lead, and both methods agreed the date is about 4.5-something billion years old. The Guarana meteorite, which got argon-argon spectrum, rubidium-strontium isochron, both methods agreeing with an age of a little less than 4.5 billion years. And the St. Severin meteorite, which got argon-argon, rubidium-strontium, samarium-neodymium, lead-lead, all agreeing with roughly 4.5 billion years, give or take 100 million years or so. So lots of different labs, different methods, using different radioactive clocks, all converging on answers within about a 1% difference of each other. So again, it all adds up. You don't just have uh, one eyewitness. You have multiple eyewitnesses that are independently telling you more or less the same thing. All telling you about the kilt. All yep. telling you the katana. Another example he cites, uh, the KT tectites. So we know about the uh, the... Oh, my God, I can never say this right. The cheek shalub? Um, I've, whenever I've had to do it for a video or something, I've had to look it up. Um. <laughs> I'm going to say cheek shalub and, and hope it's right. So the cheek shalub impact, Robert, we know around 1980, scientists discovered there's this huge crater spanning the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Its center is near a village or a town known as cheek shalub. And this is the site of the Chicxulub impact event, which occurred. Uh, and the village was not there. No. <laughs> when, the, uh, when the impact occurred, just to be clear. Certainly not. Uh, no, this happened about 66 million years ago. Uh, and it's the, the event which many paleontologists point to as the main factor or one of the main factors in the last great extinction before the present, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction, also known as the KPG extinction or the KT extinction, which killed off the non-avian dinosaurs. Of course, we've still got birds, which are dinosaurs. Yeah, still have the chicken. Yep. But uh, not just them. It killed something like 75% of the plant and animal species on Earth and basically killed all the large animals. It was a real reboot, you might say. Yeah. Uh, the object itself was about 10 kilometers in diameter. And when an object like that hits the Earth, it, it creates a ruckus. It throws up tons of geologically weird material into the atmosphere, which comes down all over the place and becomes an easily recognizable layer within the geological strata that we were just talking about. So you can pretty easily look at geological layers and see where this impact happened once you know what to look for because the sedimentary rocks below it contain Cretaceous fossils and dinosaurs and stuff, and the rocks above it do not – but also because there's a thin layer of these weird impact byproducts, things like shocked quartz, iridium, which is found in asteroids, and these things called tectites. So dinosaurs and then a layer of weird stuff and then a layer of no dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, it, it tells a story. Right. And so tectites are, tectites are sacred crystal shop stuff. If you look these up, you know, you think – you look at this and this is what will cure your fear of the dark or something. Really, they are these black glassy blobs that are found only in the most unusual uh, of circumstances. So when you've got a high energy impact that occurs and instantaneously melts rock, you'll get these tectites. And at the uh, Chicxulub impact, these little glass spherules, these tectites got ejected up into the atmosphere and distributed all over the place. And they can be found in Haiti and Mexico. And, and so tectites from this layer corresponding to the KPG impact found in modern-day Haiti have been dated radiometrically by different labs at different times, different methods. Uh, scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey, from Berkeley, from Stanford, from uh, places in Canada and France, all separately measured dates for these glassy little impact blobs and then for volcanic ash beds that are just a few centimeters above the KPG impact layer using different methods like argon-argon, potassium-argon, rubidium-strontium, and uranium-lead. And all the results fell within 64 to 66 million years ago. So yet again, everybody's doing different tests, different stuff, and they're all getting the same answers. One last example that uh, Dalrymple gives is dating something that we actually have historical records of. 
We know when it happened because humans were alive and they were there to see it happen and make records of it. And this would be the Mount Vesuvius eruption. Ah, yes, a very explosive moment, a very dramatic moment. Uh, there, so this, the Mount Vesuvius eruption happened on August 24th, 79 CE, and this was in the first century CE. And we actually have a firsthand description of it from Pliny the Younger writing in a letter to Cornelius Tacitus describing what happened just to read a short part of the letter uh, with a couple of abridgments, Pliny writes, The sea seemed to roll back upon itself and to be driven from its banks by the convulsive motion of the earth. It is certain at least the shore was considerably enlarged and several sea animals were left upon it. On the other side, a black and dreadful cloud, broken with rapid zigzag flashes, revealed behind it variously shaped masses of flame. These last were like sheet lightning, but much larger. Soon afterward, the cloud began to descend and cover the sea. It had already surrounded and concealed the island of Capri and the promontory of Misenum. The ashes now began to fall upon us, though in no great quantity. I looked back. A dark, a dense dark mist seemed to be following us, spreading itself over the country like a cloud. And he goes on to talk about what all the people were doing as they were fleeing. It's great. We, we should maybe re revisit the eruption of Vesuvius oh, yeah. sometime. Yeah, let us know if you would like to hear uh, an episode devoted to this because uh, we, could have, we could have a lot of fun with it. I mean, tragic and destructive and apocalyptic as it is. Uh, but it's, it's a great description that, that Pliny has here. Uh, but anyway, so how, how does this come into uh, corroborating radiometric dates? Well, th this is a historical event that can be used to calibrate radiometric methods. Not every method is appropriate for this kind of time scale, but scientists at uh, the Berkeley Geochronology Center and the University of Naples, they wanted to see how well argon-argon dating could do here. So they got 12 samples of sanidine from the ash flows from the Vesuvius eruption. And uh, Dalrymple says that the dating method generated an estimate of about uh, 1,925 years this was in 1997, and the actual age at the time was 1,918 years, so about seven years off. And that's amazingly close, for especially for young rock like this, which, the, which was assumed to be more difficult to date accurately. Absolutely, because again, we're zeroing in on 79 CE. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to mention is that in one of the emails we got, like the, the email from CJ, I think, that we read at the beginning of the first episode, CJ mentioned – Maybe like looking at creationist critiques of radiometric dating methods. And I don't think it really makes sense to try to focus on any one of these because they are myriad. So like it just seems like there are thousands of them, as many as there are creationist books and pamphlets. Uh, so obviously we don't have time to address them all. And none stand out as particularly good. When I've looked at them before, they take the form of – uh, one of the things we talked about in the last episode is like pointing out ways that radiometric dating could be misapplied or could be flawed, which scientists know about, and mm -hmm. they take steps to correct, including corroborating with multiple methods, right? Um, or using using you know careful types of calibration to eliminate errors and to increase accuracy in their tests. Some of it's just pointing out ways that measurements could go wrong which scientists already know about and take into account. Yeah, and using that as an excuse to just throw the whole method out. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, uh, you know, there are lots of ways that watches can be wrong. Therefore, your watch, you can't trust what time it says. Yeah. Other methods that I think are common are like isolating examples of when a uh, radiometric dating method has generated a incorrect result. And these are often highlighted in order to show ways that you can make the tests more accurate and eliminate errors. So like scientists are aware of the fact that it's possible to generate an incorrect result with a radiometric test. Part of what they do is learning the circumstances in which these errors arise and trying to avoid them. And then others are just theoretical critiques, which I think are simply misunderstandings of the underlying science. But I, it, it has never seemed very productive to me to just play whack-a-mole with the various, uh, uh, you know, misunderstandings and critiques as they arise. 
Yeah, I agree. I don't think that's a constructive exercise at all. But what we wanted to finish on today was to talk about ways in which the age of the Earth is not just confirmed by direct measurement methods that say look at meteorites or look at rocks on the Earth and say this is how old it is and then and then as if the age of the Earth rests entirely on those results. The fact that the Earth is old, that it is older than a few thousand years – is something that is so thoroughly incorporated in pretty much every branch of science that if the Earth were only a few thousand years old, we would have to throw out essentially all of science. Right. It, it touches everything. And so for the rest of today's episode, we just wanted to explore other ways of looking at time and, and the history of the Earth and the universe. Yes, additional examples of, uh, of just how interconnected all of this is and additional examples of things you would have to throw out if you were to adhere to, say, a 6,000-year-old uh, model for the Earth. Do you want to take a quick break and then deal with this when we come back? Let's do it. All right, we're back. Okay, so we're going to talk about ways of corroborating the fact that the Earth is old, which essentially becomes everything else in science. Right, and we're going to jump around a little bit in here. We, you know, we're going to do some geological uh, science, uh, some some uh, some some uh, some astronomy as well. Um, some of these examples we're going to spend uh, just a few sentences on. Others we're going to go into a little more depth. Right now, e not every method will help give us an estimate of the exact age of the Earth, like radiometric dating might. But there are at least dozens of other lines of evidence that we can talk about that the Earth, the solar system, and the universe must be older than X time, with X always being much longer than the proponents of a several thousand-year-old Earth would, would grant. Yeah, like evidence, you're gonna, we're going to see this over and over again. Like, here's evidence of something that it, it only makes sense if it's 8,000 years old. It only makes sense if it's 10,000 years old. So let's look at some other stuff about what's in the Earth, like geochemistry and geology. Yeah, uh, if we enter into the realm of petroleum geology, um, uh, we, we know that biomass requires far more than 6,000 years to become coal or petroleum, like hundreds of thousands to millions of years. Uh, and then it takes roughly 25 million years for it to reach the surface in a natural oil seep. Right. Oil, coal doesn't make sense in a young Earth. Right. So, uh, yeah, if, if you're going to have that 6,000-year-old Earth, uh, you don't get to use any of the petroleum. Sorry. There, are, there are also, if you just look at the formations of individual, like, rocks and crystals and stuff, they're, they're slow-forming crystals. Yeah. Take the, take the diamond, for instance. Uh, by radioactively dating minerals inside diamonds, because you can't date the diamond itself, uh, we can tell that most diamonds probably formed in the Earth's first 2 billion years or so. And even younger diamonds are still tens of hundreds of millions of years old. Uh, this uh, according to diamond expert Jeffrey Post, uh, who was quoted in a Smithsonian Magazine piece. Wait, tens of hundreds of millions? Wouldn't that be billions? I, he is attributed as, as saying tens of hundreds of millions of years old. I, I, you run into this occasionally, uh, people who are um, uh, generally you know, experts in a field that are uh, hesitant to use the word billions. I feel like I've seen that too. That yeah. is weird. It's like they don't like it. It doesn't sound right. Billions. I feel like there's probably a good reason for that. Uh, but still, like, the numbers are still the same. So there's nothing yeah, inaccurate in, in this statement. They all have somebody they don't like named Bill. <laughs> they don't want an order of magnitude named after him. Uh, hey, here's another one when you look at the Earth. Caves. Now, mm. th there are quick-forming caves, for example, like lava tubes. Uh, lava tubes are a wonderful, fascinating thing we could look at sometime. But we know that there are other kinds of caves, and we know what these other kinds of caves look like that take a very long time to form and that formations within them take a very long time to, to assume the shape we see them in now. Yeah, uh, stalactites and stalagmites are great examples to look at. You know, we're talking about calcite stone formations created by the gradual dripping of water in cave environments. And the process is often still taking place right before our eyes, uh, and the resulting formations are often quite old. Uh, so the exact rate of um, stalactite and stalagmite formation varies, of course. Limestone uh, stalactites and stalagmites generally take thousands of years. Those in lava tubes, as you mentioned, those may take hours uh, to form, you know. Um, but like let, let's Im imagine a limestone cave or, you know, any, some kind of sedimentary cave. What do the stalactites and stalagmites look like there? Oh, I mean, there's some wonderful examples of just enormous uh, stalactites, stalagmites. If you've ever visited a cave, 
you know, I'm thinking of some of the, like the more touristy caves, uh, especially in the United States, like say Mammoth Cave, uh, Cumberland Caverns, that sort of thing. Uh, then you've, you've probably seen some of these examples. They're enormous. And again, it's like looking at the Grand Canyon. You're looking at time right there in front of you. Um, just a few examples that I, I, I picked out here that uh, that I think uh, speak to this. Uh, for instance, in 2017, a stalagmite uh, growing, quote-unquote, out of the hip bone of a prehistoric human skeleton helped date a Yucatan Peninsula skeleton to at least 13,000 years old. So in other words, they were looking at these bones and they were looking at this, uh, this, uh, st- this uh, stalagmite that seemed to be growing up out of it. And, uh, and, and this was the, the age range they were dealing with. Wow. Another example, in France's uh, Brunequil Cave, we have evidence of uh, Neanderthals having broken off 400 stalagmites uh, to a range into two rings. Mm. And uh, supporting evidence, uh, including carbon dating of a burnt bare bone from the location, indicate that the rings were uh, uh, roughly 47,600 years old, older than any, any cave painting. Mm. In Spain's uh, Moraine Cave, uh, for instance, you'll find a stalagmite that's estimated to be uh, 9,055, give or take, uh, 915 years old. I want to point out um, that uh, you, you also do see examples, small examples of uh, stalagmites forming in concrete structures. And this is something that you'll occasionally see pointed out on some of these websites saying, how can you believe in the age of stalagmites? Because look, if you go to the parking deck, there's a little stalagmite there. <laughs> Clearly, the earth is only as old as this uh, this parking deck. Well, um, here's how what's going on. Concrete-derived stalagmites are sometimes observed in concrete structures. And these, again, are quite small and they form more rapidly than natural cave structures. Uh, they are by no means a gotcha point for discrediting uh, geologic science. I've never seen a parking garage stalactite. What? You need to get into the stalactite. They're around. If you uh, hang out in, in some of the uh, subterranean <laughs> concrete zones uh, around our own city of Atlanta, you will encounter them. Robert, what's your favorite parking garage to hang out in? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I do actually enjoy like a, a significantly creepy parking garage environment. It feels Me too, actually. like the Morlocks are going to show up in any moment, right? Well, I always think of like Escape from New York and kind of yeah. 70s Carpenter, 70s, 80s Carpenter when I when there's a good abandoned parking garage. It's got that kind of that echoey creepiness of the early scenes in Escape from New York. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but even then, you're not going to find uh, any huge uh, stalactites or stalagmites. Now, um, as far as uh, the, the age of caves go, uh, you get into you know much deeper time when you're just talking about those. You're not talking about the formations within, but just the, the cave systems themselves. Consider Mammoth Cave National Park. Uh, major tourist attraction as far as caves go. Uh, geologists estimate that the oldest part of the sprawling cave complex formed 10 million years ago. And if you're in Australia and you happen to visit uh, Genolan Caves, I believe I'm saying that right, perhaps it's Genolan. Um, I'm sure our, our, our Aussie listeners will correct me on this. Oh, I'm still, I still can't live it down from when I said, what did I say, Canberra or something? Oh, yes. I think it's Canberra. <laughs> well, anyway, if you visit this particular cave, you will be visiting some caves that are thought to be 340 million years old. And there's a lot more here we could talk about uh, geologically. Uh, I mean, you can look to the formation of mountains, rock layering through sedimentation, which we've touched on already. Uh, There's a reason we speak of geologic time, and the earth is written in geologic time. Young earth views enforce human time uh, or the, the timeline of human civilization upon a thing that dwarfs our brief period of cultural ascendance. You know, one way you can actually make geologic time feel a little bit more intuitive, uh, you can try to internalize it, is visiting fossil beds. Mm -hmm. I know that was a feeling. One of the coolest things I've ever gotten to do, I've talked about on the show before, was uh, visiting the the trilobite beds, Burgess Shale National Park in in Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, which is Cambrian fossils, trilobites everywhere, anomalocaris fossils, and you're just walking around on them. But you get to see the massive vertical face of the shale that's made by sedimentary deposition over millions, billions of years that's broken off into all these flakes that you're walking around. And you just realize like the the depth of time – 
required to lay down this sediment, fossilize all these creatures, and then drive it up, make it into the side of a mountain mm -hmm. near the top of the mountain, and then break it all off as it erodes into these beds along the, the mountainside, it's humbling. It's a humbling amount of time that you that is required to see this happen. And it's all extinct organisms too. Yeah. Now, now it, this is great, though, that you brought up the uh, the, the fossils here because uh, the next area I want to touch on has to do with um, with, with seafloor spreading and continental drift and, indeed, uh, the distribution of fossil species. This is a really interesting one. Yeah, and, and I feel it's, it's particularly interesting because I feel on one hand, most of us are at least dimly aware that the continents are not – uh, in the in the position they were they were always in. I mean, if nothing else, it's been pointed out to you on a world map how Africa and South America once spooned, or, or perhaps right. you've seen an epic uh, animation detailing the breaking up of Pangaea and the end of the super ocean. Uh, but wait a minute. What if I were to say, well, I think it's just a coincidence that South America is shaped like it used to fit into the underside of the east part of Africa. Well, this is a this was is a valid um, um, uh, critique of of just this argument on on the face of it uh, because it's really only been fairly recently that we've we've known about this and it's been accepted. Uh, before roughly a hundred years ago, we just assumed that the continents were basically in the same position that they've always been in. Uh, the evidence that led to the revelation. Uh, here was the distribution of fossil species. Ah. And that's where German scientist Alfred uh, uh, Wegener comes in, who lived 1880 through 1930. And indeed, he came up against the same criticism. It's uh, just a coincidence. Yeah, saying, well, they're saying, well, that's interesting, but I don't know if that's really uh, that, really solid evidence for what you're talking about. Uh, because he, uh, he noted the presence of similar plant and animal fossils in South America and Africa. How did they get there? Well, that that's that's what he was he was trying to answer. He noted the similar geologic formations on both continents, and uh, and also the whole spooning thing. He said, "How how else though could we possibly have these these examples on these separate continents unless they were once uh, part of the same landmass?" Okay, so South America and Africa look like they used to fit together. Weirdly enough, we find that the same species used to sort of cross boundaries between them. That's yeah. kind of odd. But how could they have actually been split apart? That doesn't make any sense. And that's the thing. They said, well, we need a, we need a, a more robust idea of how this could possibly work. Uh, otherwise, we're just not going to buy it. So it wasn't until the 50s and 60s that marine geologists identified uh, the ocean ridges that wound uh, about the Earth, as well as the mid-ocean ridges formed by seafloor volcanoes. And this was backed up by... By, uh, magnetometer data as well. Uh, so this is the basic seafloor spreading hypothesis proposed by uh, petrologist uh, Harry Hess and oceanographer Robert uh, Dietz. In 65, uh, geophysicist uh, J. Tuzo Wilson used continental drift and seafloor spreading pr to propose the theory of plate tectonics. Uh, this theory is now universally accepted by geoscientists. Yeah, th that's one of those great scientific theory success stories. We could tell that story sometime because that was something that was ridiculed at first, the idea that the continents are moving around. Yeah, and it is a, it is a crazy, mind-blowing thing to try and, uh, and think about because it is – it just is existing on a time scale far beyond – uh, what we've evolved to really comprehend. But it is amazing how an animation, uh, like I described earlier, can give it life and, and make sense of it for you. Now, let's try to imagine a model where South America and Africa split up and the were split apart by a spreading ocean ridge, and that happened just a few thousand years ago. That is a that is a messed up world. Yeah, it uh, it doesn't hold up. Yeah, it, it simply doesn't work with a model of Earth uh, that's less than two hundred million years old. You cannot have a younger Earth and bring the geosciences with you. Uh, you have to cast out all of the twentieth century's evidence and cling to uh, essentially a pre Wegener understanding of the uh, the position of the continents. And of course, I know you'll say keep your hands off the dinosaurs. Right. Yeah, you don't get to have the dinosaurs either. <laughs> and, and so no dinosaurs, no paleo art. Stick to uh, to drawing all the other uh, cool stuff in those uh, ancient texts. Now, another – now, just to – we haven't exhausted everything on the earth that points to an old earth. Right, because essentially the evidence here is all geoscience. Yeah, but – 
We could also look beyond Earth. We, we, we can look to evidence from astronomy and astrophysics. And what you find when you look to astronomy and astrophysics is that everything in the universe agrees with a long billions of years timeline of the universe. That's right. Uh, and again, part of the issue here is that worldviews that call for an absurdly young Earth are also calling for an absurdly young cosmos. And if you believe in a 6,000-year-old Earth – yeah, you don't get to keep modern astronomy. I mean, certainly we can speak to the uh, the probable time scale for the formation of our own solar system, uh, but we also have to think to the stars. Now, nobody, I think, is going to be disputing the speed of light in a vacuum. Right. But what does the speed of light in a vacuum tell us about the universe we're looking at? Well, it gives you an idea of of not only the um, – uh, the size of everything, but the but the, the vast time scale involved as well. Right. So, for instance, with the naked human eye, uh, an individual on Earth can glimpse the light from the Andromeda galaxy, which will one day be the same as our galaxy. We're we're headed together. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, talking in distant time here, the big meetup. Yeah, but but currently the Andromeda galaxy that's two point six, or I've also seen two point five four. Uh, million light years from Earth. And a light year, will remind you, is the distance traveled by a beam of light, or, or the photons technically, in the space of a given year. So the light you see when you look to Andromeda, uh, that left our sister galaxy 2.6 million years ago. Right. So if we're to contend with this fact alone, the universe would have to at least be that old for light to have reached us at all uh, you know, given a magical finger snap creation of the cosmos. Though the thing about playing with with magic is that you can just make up additional uh, baloney answers, of course, and say, right. well, uh, when the universe was created, beam, uh, beams of light or photons were created in transit uh, to the destination. Well, if you're going to say stuff like that, I mean, I, you know, no, no offense, but, you know, go in peace, but that you've just essentially surrendered having a conversation based on evidence. Right. You've just said like, okay, well, then I'm not interested in talking about what we can know based on what we observe. I just assume that magic is involved and then in that case, what, why are we having the conversation? Right. But, but I think it would, it's fair to say that if you had a 6,000-year-old Earth within a 6,000-year-old cosmos, uh, then, then you would only be able to see things. It would, you would only be reachable by light within a 6,000-light-year Radius, so there would be a six thousand light year visible universe, and uh, and we have a vaster visible universe than that. Right. I mean, I wonder what if you are trying to imagine a younger universe and do astronomy. What do you make of the cosmic microwave background? Yeah. What, what is what is that to you? <laughs> because of that, that's of course getting back to the very beginning. Right. Um, but then there's other evidence as well. There there have been gamma ray bursts visible to the naked eye uh, that are further and, and older than uh, uh, than what we were talking about with Andromeda. In 2008, astronomers clocked the stellar explosion RB080319b at 7.5 billion light years away. And incidentally, this was one of five stellar explosions recorded on the day of Arthur C. Clarke's death on March 19th, 2008. Do you think he made it happen? No. <laughs> I think he would be mad if we thought that he did. Uh, uh, hey, and if you drag uh, the Hubble telescope into the fray, uh, our limit takes uh, takes us up to like what thirteen point four billion light years. You know, where, uh, again, that's light uh, that that is uh, that is, that can be uh, at least technologically observed from our little corner of the cosmos. That's the radius of our view, not the right. diameter. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's like we touched on before the astronomy. To, to stare at the stars is to gaze into the past, a deep past, a past that dwarfs the entirety of human history, the entirety of, uh, of our, uh, our various stories about how the universe works and where it came from. But, I mean, you can even extrapolate that back to the circum the material circumstances of our own solar system. So it only takes light from our sun, you know, a number of minutes to reach us. Mm -hmm. But you can look at our sun and know that the universe is old. Uh, so one of the things is that the quality of our astronomical observation tools, stellar astrophysics, and computer modeling capabilities now let us know a lot about stars and how they form. And we know they form – 
From clouds of dust and gas called nebulae that fall into gravitational collapse, they begin to coalesce and they heat up into what's known as a protostar. And we also know that this process of gas collapse takes a very long time. For instance, our sun is a star that is obviously no longer a collapsing cloud of gas and dust. It's an adult star. It's a star that's performing fusion of hydrogen into helium. Uh, It's in its adult mature phase. And the time it takes for a star the size of our sun to go from the beginning of collapse uh, of the nebula into its adult phase. I was looking at some NASA materials on this. That's somewhere around 50 million years. We can model that with the astrophysics knowledge we have. If the universe were not at least 50 million years old, our sun could not be an adult star. But it gets worse because we also know that our sun cannot be a first-generation star. Our solar system is full of not just hydrogen, you know, like the most abundant gas in the universe. It's full of heavy elements like iron. Where did all that come from? That's not primordial material. Heavy elements like that are forged in the deaths of other stars. So actually we know that not only – did you know is our is our star an adult that had to grow up also it can't have been a first generation star it had to come from a previous generation of dead stars to create these heavy elements that make up things like the planets and i have to say you know if, this means that if if you if you cast aside this understanding you you can't have gold and if you can't have gold <laughs> you can't have the ark of the covenant and and i and i have to say like how much cooler is the story of the ark of the covenant uh, if if you factor in the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is made of this metal forged in the heart of a dying star, oh, I think that's that's far more that, that's far cooler. That's far more amazing. It is a radio for talking to God. <laughs> But we can also – I mean uh, we talked about meteorites. You can look at other objects in the solar system and they also turn out to be quite old. They line up with our model of how old our solar system is. What about the moon? Yeah. I mean there there are a few different models for how the moon came uh, to be. Uh, The most popular scientific hypothesis is the giant impactor hypothesis. In this hypothesis, a Mars-sized object hit the young cooling Earth uh, at an angle. And this would have been – this would have occurred about 4.45 billion years ago. And the impactor itself melted into the Earth, but debris from the impact went up and eventually formed into the moon. And this, according to the hypothesis, is why moon rocks are similar in composition to Earth's mantle and why the moon has no iron core. Yeah, this makes sense. The the moon looks like something that came off the Earth but not from the core of the Earth. Right. It's an accretion of uh, terrestrial shrapnel, according to this hypothesis. You know, another totally different way of looking deep into the past that I've uh, talked about before. I I remember one time I did a guest episode of Tech Stuff with Jonathan Strickland about Mm -hmm. this. It was about ice core drilling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so one way scientists study the atmosphere of the Earth long ago, like if you're trying to figure out what atmospheric composition was a long time ago. One way you can do this is you can drill down into – ice sheets or into glaciers to pull up these cylinder-shaped vertical columns of ice. And they will contain information, interesting information, like bubbles of gas trapped in ice layers from the distant past or what the snow looked like as it was deposited each season in the past. And often these cylinder-shaped ice cores come from Greenland or Antarctica, places where ice has been accumulating on top of itself for hundreds of thousands of years or more. And ice layers accumulate steadily year after year, giving you a very helpful map of past freezing seasons. And normally you can date this ice uh, simply by counting the neatly ordered layers of yearly accumulation, especially near the top of an ice core, you can do that. Though this method does become more difficult the deeper you go because obviously you've got stuff like compression and stuff happening. So older samples can cross-reference multiple dating methods to boost accuracy. Uh, These other methods can be things like uh, correlating deeper layers of ice with known historical geological events like the deposition of volcanic ash or other geological markers. If you know when a volcano erupted, 
did and what that deposition layer looks like. You can see signs of that there. But there are some really old ice cores that we've that we've managed to pull up. Until last year, I think the oldest known ice core was about 800,000 years old, and that came from a core drilled in Antarctica's Dome C, which was dated, I believe, using radiometric uranium decay. Oh, wow. That's getting uh, on down to that uh, Lovecraftian city at uh, exactly. the bottom of everything, right? Yeah, at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, but in 2017, an extremely old ice core was drilled in a patch of what's known as blue ice in the Allen Hills of East Antarctica. And in fact, this was dated to 2.7 million years old. Now, because of the nature of the blue ice patches where old ice formations are driven up from below, it couldn't be dated by like counting the layers, but it was dated by potassium argon dating to 2.7 million with a likely error tolerance of something like 100,000 years. So even just ice, ice is not even rock. I mean, Mm -hmm. you think about like ice should be melting and churning up all the time. We can find ice that goes back hundreds of thousands of years. So again, these are these are not like the only uh, examples we could turn to. We could it, it would be an exhaustive list uh, because virtually all the, the geosciences, uh, astronomical understanding. I mean, it it, it all is based on this, and, and all ties into this idea. Um, of an old, much older Earth and a much older cosmos. Yeah. And so, of course, as we were talking about a minute ago, a person whose theological beliefs drive them toward believing in a young Earth can always simply say, well, none of that matters because I have a supernatural explanation for the way things are. You know, it was just made to look that way. And if you believe that, as I've said, I mean, the, I think that is the point where you may go in peace. Like, you, it is possible you simply will not be convinced. But notice how much that type of explanation starts to resemble the invisible dragon in Carl Sagan's garage, Mm -hmm. right? Like if a belief is designed so that it can safely ignore all tests and all evidence to the contrary, why would you believe it? Yeah. And again, I want to make clear, this is not aimed at religious beliefs in general. People have all kinds of ways of of being religious. I'm talking about those specifically that make claims about physical reality and about history that encroach on territory for which we have good evidence about what actually happened. Yeah, in areas where we're actually dealing with um – uh, the the rejection of science or the, uh, the the twisting and replacement of science with a a pseudoscience that supports uh, a preconceived theological notion. Right, and so I guess maybe one question to end with is: uh, we started with these emails we've gotten from listeners asking for help sorting out these claims, and we get these emails because. People live in a world where there are competing claims against about the age of the earth and they don't know how to make sense of, uh, of the arguments coming from each side. And this, yeah, I've experienced this too. There are a bazillion young earth creationist arguments out there. And unless you literally devote your entire life to it, you're really not going to have time to investigate all of them for yourself and find out if they're correct. So, I mean – I think a a fair question to ask is how do you know when you can just consider an issue settled? How do you know when you can responsibly just start ignoring arguments that come from a certain perspective? You know what I mean, Robert? Yeah. Yeah, like I mean, we talk about it being the the bedrock for 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 uh, scientific understanding. But yeah, how can you know it's bedrock that you can build upon up on, on top of it? Right, because I mean, the scientific mindset it doesn't say like, well, okay, now we've got a dogma and you just accept it forever and never question it. You know, you should always be open to evidence to the contrary. But how do you know when? By paying attention to certain kinds of arguments, you can be 99.999% sure that you are wasting your time. I mean, it's a great question because so much of the bedrock understanding of of the natural world, you know, it's based on things that are technically theories. You know, we have theoretical understandings of things and we have to proceed based upon those theories. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we don't want to give the – accidentally give the misimpression that a theory means a thing like is something we should not have good confidence in. No, no. You can have good confidence in a theory. A theory is above a hypothesis. Yeah, exactly. But I I guess I'm trying to figure out where do you draw the line between – so here's one where most I think paleontologists think – that the uh, the we were talking about the uh, Chicxulub impact, mm-hmm. right? That that was a major factor in the demise of the dinosaurs, right? But there are some who disagree, and so that seems like an issue where the evidence seems to be, or at least the experts are largely on one side of the question, 
But there's maybe still legitimate controversy. Maybe we could find out the opposite is true. Maybe that uh, impact was not the main factor in the right. demise of the dinosaurs. And I can conceivably see that happening. The young Earth does not feel that way to me because it is it, – it so violates in such a fundamental way everything we know from every field that's – you know, that's independently verified by the means of that field on its own, it seems like stuff that goes in the face of an old earth is guaranteed to fail. Yeah, you're dealing with such drastically different ideas here. Yeah. Uh, again, just drastically different time scales. One matches up with uh, our scientific understanding of the world and the other, as we have just been hammering home here in these two episodes – does not. Discovering that the Earth is young would be kind of like discovering that electricity does not involve electrons. I would just want to just drive home. Like if you're out there and you feel like your belief system keeps you from embracing science, um, I would encourage you to, to look around and find and, and see if you can't find a version of your belief system that makes room for science and allows for science because I can almost guarantee you that it's out there. And there, there are people out there who can hold on to uh, the, the beliefs that you cherish and the culture that you cherish without rejecting science. Well said. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to close this episode out and we're just going to remind everybody – Head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com because that is our mothership. That is where you will find all of our episodes. Uh, you'll find blog posts. You'll find links to our various social media accounts. And you'll also find a tab for our store, which is, uh, which is super cool. If you want to get uh, a, a T-shirt, a pillow, uh, stickers for your laptops or street signs, whatever, uh, stick them on your body. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have some cool uh, uh, merchandise there available with our logo on it. Some, some of them say stuff to blow your mind. Sometimes it's just the logo. It's just kind of a wink to, you know, other people you might encounter who are also fans of the show. Uh, and we also have some cool uh, designs based on particular episodes that are worth checking out. Do you know if our designs are being sold as temporary tattoos? If not, how can we get that done? I do not believe that is currently available, but uh, they're always adding new products uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the store. So perhaps in the future it will become possible. Um, and hey, if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't involve money, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so, such as uh, Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us uh, with feedback about this episode or any other, to let us know uh, a topic you'd like us to cover in the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.